Welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth, and welcome to my guest, Bob Kipps, who is the Managing Director at Kipps DeSanto. Welcome, Bob. Yeah, hi, Wayne. Welcome, and, and, and thanks for being a guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Let me tell you a little bit about Bob. He's a native Washingtonian like me, and he's a son of a government contracts litigation attorney, which we'll forgive him for. But his whole life has revolved around aerospace, defense, and government contracting negotiation and strategy. He really is one of the, the true experts in this area. And his firm, Kips DeSanto, has focused for many, many years really exclusively on that area and all the aspects of Gov GovCon. And as an investment banker and a transaction advisor, he's really got a unique uh, opportunity to help clients like our listeners who may be in that space understand what strategic transaction really best fits their specific ownership and their operating needs and their transaction goals and objectives. So this is an exciting opportunity for me. I've known Bob for many years, but it's, it's great for me to include you in our uh, uh, parade of special guests. And, um, you know, first, uh, how did you start Kips DeSanto? I know you came out of another big investment bank. How did, how did it start? What inspired you to start it? You know, uh, we started Kips DeSanto with a couple colleagues, Mark Marlin and Kevin Santo, who I was working with at our predecessor firm, Houlihan Loki, which I had actually been with for 11 years and had a great experience there uh, as that firm grew. And it ultimately ended up selling a year before I, we started Kips DeSanto. Uh, so I had a great experience because that firm grew from 80 folks to almost 800 by the time I left. And before that, I'd also had the benefit of working with a uh, a highly successful sort of consulting organization, which ultimately got splintered, but all all gobbled into Navigant, uh, which itself has been acquired. So I'd had the benefit of working with some uh, great entrepreneurs, had some great mentors, mentors along the way, and always kind of had the itch in the back of my mind to, to kind of start my own thing. Who were, who were some of your, your key mentors that helped you through your career that you really think about a lot? Well, I would say from the very beginning, you mentioned my father. <laughs> you know, he was actually a hardworking sort of government contracts lawyer. And so I did see the benefit of sort of focus and hard work. And uh, he was the you know lawyer, probably like you, worked during the day, came home, did more work at night, you know, back in the day when uh, before Zoom and everything else. So that was, you know, from the beginning, kind of saw the benefit of focus and hard work. Then, uh, like I say, at um, the consulting firm, Kind of similarly at a high level, uh, the founder, the firm was called Peterson Consulting. Alan Peterson happened to know my father, so I, I ended up meeting the CEO, and I probably wouldn't have naturally, but he was a great mentor. Um, and then at Houlihan, I had two great mentors, Lou Payone and Jerry Grossman. I think you know Jerry, and so that were both sort of, you know, very influential in sort of setting the tone and culture that I liked, and ultimately uh, that Kevin, Mark, and I kind of set at Kips Santo. So. Absolutely. Now, last year, you guys probably set a record pace of transactions. Was that your best year in terms of the number of transactions and the and the dollar value involved? By far. Yeah, we did 32 transactions last year up from 20 the year before. So yeah, it was it was a blockbuster year for the industry. And uh, we were fortunate to benefit from that. too. So if you had to analyze the the reasons for the the flood of M&A activity, particularly in the GovCon sector last year, what would that be? 
Well, I would say it, it was across other sectors as well. And we've started to grow into technology, non-government oriented technology and managed services and software. But so we have a little bit of a sense as to what's happening in other places. But I'd say that the biggest the biggest element, uh, which you know, I know you're familiar with on the seller side was for government contractors in particular, but all private company owners was the potential and fear of for potential change for on the capital gain side. And so that was a catalyst. There was also some residual from people that took off 2020, given the commencement of the pandemic. And then on the buy side, because there's a buyer for every one of those sellers, you know, there, there's just been this flood into private capital and into alternative investments from the from uh, institutional investors, from high net worth folks, into private equity and hedge funds. And so you've seen private equity as an aggressive buyer in the middle market. And so it's really was uh, fantastic. And obviously you continue to have low interest rates and a strong credit market. And you put all those things together and you end up with a lot of buyers and a lot of sellers. It was a perfect storm. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen in 2022 now that we know, we know pretty, pretty well that uh, at least I, I believe that there will not be any tax legislation this year. If there is, it's not going to increase the capital gains rate. The worst thing that could happen is they enact the uh, rule that applies the net investment income tax, the 3.8% to S corp owners. And that just jacks up their, the cost of their deal. Um, what do you think is going to happen in 2022? What are you seeing so far? We're very bullish on 2022. I'd say it kind of feels a little bit like, and you probably remember this, we were around 2010. There was a kind of a similar scare that, oh, rates might go up. And they didn't. And then they had 2011. So, and then 2012, they actually did go up at the end of 12. So you know, definitely some deals got pulled forward into a crazy fourth quarter last year. So I would I wouldn't be surprised to see the first quarter be a little quieter on the announcement front once we get beyond January, where still December deals are being announced. But I'm extremely bullish on this year because the same, you know, the same economic conditions exist. Still relatively low interest rates. While there's been some uptick here in the last few months, up, you know, it's it's starting from a very low low level. Do you believe that the interest rate uh, situation is going to remain? fairly stable this year, or do you expect, or does Capital One even expect to see increases uh, that might put a chilling effect on M&A? Well, I can't speak for Capital One, but I would say that I don't view them changing to a degree where they would have a material impact on M&A. I, 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 I think that naturally, I think you're going to see some rates go up either as a catch up to inflation or you see the continued Fed activity trying to control inflation and or reduce the size of its balance sheet. So I think it's inevitable because right now interest rates are lower than inflation. That's just, that's not a sustainable sort of phenomenon. So something's got to give. Either inflation's got to work its way through the system or rates are going to drift up a little bit. I don't think it's going to be material enough to impact M&A. And the reason is just there's still that flush of buyer demands. There's so many new private equity platforms in particular last year that were created and they're all looking to build. They're not, they weren't just bought to hold. And so they, on average, at least in the GovCon and aerospace defense, they buy two or three deals in that lifetime before they sell themselves. So there's an acquisition on the front end, two or three deals along the way, and four or five years later, they sell themselves. So it's sort of a self-looking ice cream cone. You know, you'd say it, once the number of deals is so high last year, it somewhat sets the tone for the next two or three years where there's going to be tuck-ins along the way. And on the seller side, actually, I think that 
I thought last year was going to be a buyer's market because of the avalanche of sellers trying to get ahead of taxes. And it ended up being pretty strongly in equilibrium and probably more a seller's market than a buyer's market. I think this year there's more buyer demand than seller supply because of that pull forward. So listen, I think we're, I think we've got a few more years left. It's just, again, it's not like everyone's out of capital or all the same conditions exist as last year. I think we're just kind of dealing with a little bit of a hangover and pull forward from the year-end deals, which ultimately, as you said, right, we're for for not potentially. Right. So the the trend continues. I mean, what I I guess my, my next question was on private equity, what percentage of the deals, the 32 deals that you all did were private equity or um, you know, high net worth, family offices buying into the GovCon sector, technology sector versus strategic buyers that, you know, the big companies that were doing the purchasing? Yeah, I don't have the exact breakdown, but I would say that over the years and last year was probably similar to that. Uh, private equity has bought about half of the clients that we, we sell. So, and, but I would say that it's, but it's bifurcated and I, you know, a little bit on this to get terminology in sync. About half of, Half of that half, so about 25%, are new platforms. And the other half of the private equity is add-ons to their platforms. So, so, and then another quarter of it would be public buyers like um, Parsons or CACI or uh, Vectris. You know, we've sold several companies to over the last couple of years. And then private to private, you know, like when we sold a company to CVP last year. You know, private entrepreneur-backed business buying Atlas Research. So it's a little, you know, they kind of, you know, year in, year out kind of fall into that, you know, quartile, each quartile, two of which are private equity influenced. Right. So about 50% private equity, right. but some are add-ons, some are new platforms. And then we've got a lot of other buyers that are out there. There's a lot of cash out there is, is what we're seeing. I, I did a deal. It was not a GovCon deal. It was a different industry at the end of the year last year. And we had we, we didn't have a letter of intent until December the 8th. And we had to close it by December the 31st. And one of the one of the benefits of being able to close as quickly as we did was the ability to get representations and warranties insurance mm-hmm. on that deal. Now, it didn't leave the insurer a lot of time to do their due diligence, but what are your thoughts? What are you, are you seeing a lot of uh, deals that are utilizing reps and warranties insurance? Definitely. I would say, as you've known and watched, uh, we've seen the same thing over the last 10 years. Rep and warranty insurance has become available for more and more smaller and smaller deals. You know, I'd say 10 years ago, it was really maybe $250 million deals, and it went to 100, then it went to 50. And now most of the deals, I mean, our sweet spot is 25 million to a billion. So, Almost every deal we do has rep warranty insurance. I think there may have been one or two or three out of the 32 that did not have it, where it would have been 10 years ago the other way around. We might have had two or three out of you know 10 to 20% max. So it's become a great product. Uh, I did experience a little bit differently than you did at your end. We actually had a deal slip into this year because the rep warranty insurance people were so backed up. Same kind of thing, late to the game. Uh, at the buyer was late, the buyer and seller late to the game. It's just, just too late to get it done, but it's a great product. It simplifies things. It's, um, you know, it's, a, it's actually a better record. It's a smarter recognition of the real risks, especially in government services where there's not a tremendous amount of liability. 
and and said, you know, there's always the fear factor when you're on the hook for something, but the possibilities are so remote and the pricing of insurance has become so economical. It almost pays for itself just by not having the escrow and money tied up for a while. Okay. Well, I mean, so so it's helpful. It's economical. It, it's not too cost uh, intensive for the uh, for the seller and the buyer. Do you see that the that the parties usually split the cost of the reps and warranties insurance, or is it something that the buyer ends up uh, carrying and paying for? Because it is it's not inexpensive. It's it's fairly expensive depending on the size of the deal. Yeah, it's it varies based on how much negotiation leverage you have. I mean, some buyers will say as part of their offer, like it has differentiated themselves, they'll pay for the whole thing. I would say most common, you know, most commonly, it's probably split. Yeah. So what's you know, if thirty of our thirty-two deals had it, I'd say twenty of them probably split it, and maybe ten had the buyer paying for it. You know, it's, it was a pretty good, pretty good market. So you, some places, you sometimes you get the buyer to pay the whole thing. But I'd say more often it's probably split. So you, you, I think I just heard you say thirty out of the thirty-two deals used reps and warranties. That's right. That would be probably my my estimate. Yeah. Well, then that you know, assuming that the size of the deal justifies it, um, that's something for prospective buyers and sellers to be looking at very seriously because it really cuts down on the negotiation between the lawyers and cuts down on the time that it takes to draft the purchase agreement, which is what, what we found. It, it made things a lot easier in the long run to negotiate a deal that was fair to both sides. That's right. So, you know, you've, you have bet, had Kips DeSanto for a long, long time, and then you sold uh, to Capital One. Um, what was the impetus for the, for the transaction? What caused you to take that giant step as an entrepreneur, you know, you had control over your destiny. You may still have control over your destiny, but, um, cap one's a big company. Yeah. It's, it wasn't, um, yeah, it was a little surreal, you know, in a lot of ways I'll explain, you know, we had been getting, well, we'd been through, like I said, I'd been through it, pulled a hand, been through the sale of a bank. It was bigger than we were when we sold when it was bigger, bigger, much bigger transaction. But I've been through a few transactions and then obviously saw firsthand what we do for a living for our clients. Right. And it was more a function because, you know, we're a services company, like, you know, you a law firm. And so it was less about exiting. You know, I'm my, or I guess now mid 50s, I'm about to be 55 here in a couple months. So it wasn't about sort of exiting and retiring. It was more about how do we, how do we position ourselves to be continue on our strategy? And our strategy was, as we've talked a lot about private equity, having participating in more private equity deals and having them as clients, not just buyers, and being able to expand. And we'd worked real hard to build our brand in the marketplace, but it, it was predominantly a aerospace defense and government services sort of brand and a Washington brand. And it was great, but when we thought about expanding into enterprise technology, which we had and we are, you know, it was, you know, we needed a little bit of a break. And so we also, as we moved up market on larger deals, you know, the boutique uh, status wasn't always advantageous. You know, it was very advantageous in working with entrepreneurs like, hey, you know, we're one of the same kindred spirits, same handshake. Right. But larger deals, uh, we just said, hey, you know, at some point we really, if we're going to really move up market and do kind of conquer the upper side of the middle market, 
it's probably good to team with somebody. And so we actually hired, interviewed two investment banks like ourselves and hired one of them. And they took us through a very comparable process that we take a lot of our clients through, which is a real option. So you actually hired an investment banker to represent (laughs) you as an investment banker. That's right. I told the I told our partner there, I was like, you pick a hard life. You know, it's like a lawyer working for a lawyer. It's like, geez, talk about someone looking over your shoulder. But it was it was a great experience. And it was uh, it, we tried to be a good client. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. and it was uh, but it was, you know, they reached and, and to get to Capital One. We did not know this is 2019. So we sold and closed our deal in September of 2019. Wow. And we had no idea. We knew a lot of the folks at Capital One, both in their government contracting group and other places, being the presence they have in in Northern Virginia. And had no idea they were interested or had, had just started an M&A product line in New York. And it was a general. They'd hired a generalist person. And the banker that we hired knew that. And so, you know, for a, we joke with people all the time that because, you know, clients debate whether they want to hire a broker or a banker. I'm like, we as a banker hired another banker to sell us to someone in our office building. (laughs) (laughs) And don't regret it. You know, it's like, hey, that was great. They knew Capital One. They knew the Corp Dev people. They knew the strategy. They had, you know, we went, had six or eight management presentations, got three or four final LOIs, you know, all this exactly the same process that you and I take our clients. Sure. We went through. And it was uh, maybe, I don't know, five or six months got, got exclusive and the deal was announced. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great process and they've been a great help. Like I say, we are some, somewhat, you know, a, we've been a new product line for them and they've. So you, it gives you more resources. It, it allows you to expand your offerings. Um, it sounds like a win-win That's for right. everybody. They've kept our brand. All of our people have stayed. It's been, they're there when we need them. A lot of the same shared values for the community and doing the right thing. And um, it's really worked out well. So well that they bought another M&A firm <laughs> in, uh, in November of last year. So in wow. the healthcare world, which is, you know, they had a big lending business in our footprint or, or we're in their lending footprint in government contracting. Sure. Healthcare is another big vertical where they lend into. They bought a healthcare M&A firm in Minneapolis. And so it's, you know, we're, we're really, we're in on the ground floor of helping kind of build a new product line for a, for a great kind of top 10 bank. It's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a great company. I, I know it well. Um, well, congratulations on that and congratulations on your amazing success, continuing success. But last year, you know, just probably setting track records for, uh, doing deals. Um, if people want to get in touch with Kips DeSanto, how do they do that? Well, I got- they can always, yeah, Google, email, phone, you know, we're either there or our phones are forwarded. So, yeah, it's com. Our main line is 703-442-1400. But, um, yeah, they'll find us. They'll find us. We're around. Our, our, our business, I know, you know, it's uh, given the propensity of government contractors in the Washington area. It's probably half in the Washington area, but. A lot in Southern California and Pacific Northwest and Huntsville. I mean, it's really around the country, but it's been great. And uh, and uh, being on the Capital One platform where they have presence other places is, is helpful to have that kind of brand and other, other geographies. Well, thank you. Thanks for being a special guest on Blueprint. Yeah, I appreciate for you inviting me on. Great to see you, too. Great, great to see you. And 
Folks, tune in next time for another special guest and educational moment on Blueprint for Wealth. I'm Wayne Zell. Have a great week. Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and you're listening to Blueprint for Wealth on your video cast today. And our special guest was just talking about a variety of topics, but one caught my attention in particular, and that was reps and warranties insurance, representations and warranties insurance. So here's a little educational moment about R&W insurance. So here are the key takeaways. We're going to talk about what R&W insurance is, the difference between sell-side and buy-side insurance, limitations on what the insurance may cover, what it costs, what's a deductible and how does it work, what's the process for getting R&W insurance, and what happens if a claim is made. It's a special kind of insurance that is used to protect people in a corporate transaction like an acquisition or a merger. It covers indemnity or liability for a seller's usually breaches of reps and warranties, representations and warranties that they make in the M&A agreement. Now, according to some recent literature, it's used in about a quarter of all private deals. But I was just talking to an investment banker who said that 90% of the deals that he did last year had reps and warranties insurance, and they were all private deals. The sweet spot for R&W insurance is for a deal that is between $20 million all the way up to $2 billion. So I've used it in deals that are $50, $70 million in size, and it works really well. A seller-side transaction rep and warranty insurance covers the seller's liability that arise from the seller's breaches of reps and warranties that he or she has made in selling the business in the purchase agreement. It does not cover a breach of, say, a non-compete agreement or other covenants. But it also can remove some contingencies from negotiations between the buyer and the seller, particularly relating to tax issues. And it minimizes the buyer's potential liability for successor liability that might arise in an asset deal. Buy side, it helps the buyer compete in an auction process if the buyer puts forth the ability to use R&W insurance, particularly if the buyer bears the cost. It allows for longer survival periods without the seller being nervous about having to make reps and warranties over a period longer than a year or two years. And the coverage limit may be higher than what the seller is willing to give in the transaction. So it helps bridge the gap between the seller and the buyer. These policies typically include coverage for loss from claims that are made. They're very general, blanket coverage versus dealing with specific issues. And the market typically will dictate what's acceptable depending on whether a lot of claims are being made under these policies. It covers defense costs usually, including the attorney's fees and expenses. It excludes almost always certain known issues. So for example, if there's a problem that was identified in the disclosure schedule to a purchase agreement, the R&W insurance is not gonna cover that problem. It also doesn't cover purchase price adjustments, networking capital, net worth adjustments that might be included in the deal. Typically excluded from an R&W insurance are benefit plan issues or underfunded pensions. 
Foreign Corrupt Practices Act claims, and certain environmental and product liability claims that might arise. And clearly, if the seller has committed fraud, that's a carve-out which will be excluded from reps and warranties insurance coverage. Various factors influence the cost of the insurance. What are the nature of the risks involved? How much diligence is needed to make sure that the insurer is protected as well as the buyer is protected in this deal? What did the quality of earnings analysis reveal in due diligence? And how big is the deductible? Usually the price ranges from 2.5% to 4% of the liability limit. And the liability limit is not unlimited. Typically it might be limited to 10 to 15% of the overall transaction value. Proceeds from a policy will result in taxable gain or taxable income to the buyer. So the buyer may want to be to build in some kind of tax gross up into the negotiation of the R&W insurance. And usually, particularly in large deals or complicated deals, the underwriter wants a fee to protect them from not going from the deal not going forward. So anywhere from twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars, plus maybe additional fees depending on what additional coverage might be demanded under the policy. A deductible is essentially a retention amount. It's usually based on the transaction value and it generally ranges from one to three percent. It varies based on the risks involved, but if the risk is low, the deductible might be structured as an escrow. So instead of requiring a deductible of 1%, the buyer might demand that the seller set aside funds equal to a half of a percent and therefore share the risk on the, on the uh, deductible on the policy. It's usually very fast track. The insurers want to get done really fast. So what's the process? Well, a lot of the people who work for these insurance companies handling R&W insurance are former merger and acquisition lawyers who have familiarity with the deals and the complexities. And they're good at, uh, at making the process move quickly. Having a good insurance broker is also helpful. It might take a couple of days to get a non-binding indication that the reps and warranties insurance will be placed. Then they're going to give you a list of diligence requests, which hopefully will be similar to what the buyer asked of the seller in the deal. And they, they want to have access to all the diligence that's been provided from the seller to the buyer in the deal. So usually they'll demand access into the data room where all of this information is posted. A week later, it may be that fast. The carrier discusses, discusses any diligent, diligence issues with the buyer and possibly the seller, and then they'll want to make sure that the acquisition agreement conforms to the insurance policy and vice versa so that there are no hidden uh, gotchas in the deal. Claims. There's no real specific data, but anecdotally, we've heard that claims notices are received in about 25% of the cases in the U.S., and about 12%, a lower amount, in Europe and Asia. And usually, of those claims that are made, half are settled or resolved within the deductible amount. If you want to know more about reps and warranties insurance, we'd be happy to discuss it with you, as well as your pending acquisition. Give us a call at Zell Law at 571-203-9355, or visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Thanks for watching Blueprint for Wealth, and we hope you have a great week.